You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode 10 of that one time on tour is brought to you by Enjoy the Ride Records. Enjoy the Ride Records is a really cool record label. They're doing all kinds of cool things. Uh, they're doing a lot of reissues on vinyl. They're putting out a reissue of the Academy Is record called Santi. Uh, the Scotty Doesn't Know 7-inch, which uh, if you remember the movie Eurotrip, uh, Scotty Doesn't Know was the song that was pretty much the main focus of that movie. It was by a band called Lustra, so they're doing a 7-inch for that. Uh, they're putting out uh, the Not Another Teen Movie soundtrack, and also the honorary title EP with unreleased bonus tracks. So if any of that sounds good to you, they're doing all kinds of other stuff as well. Check out all of the info at enjoytheriderecords.com. Follow them on all the social media platforms. On Instagram and Facebook, it's at enjoytheriderecords. And on Twitter, it's at enjoytheriderres. So make sure that you're supporting them because they're supporting the show. And um, I'm going to play a song from one of their releases. Uh, we were talking about Scotty Doesn't Know by the band Lustra. Uh, it was on Eurotrip, great movie. And a great song, great band. So I'm going to play it right now. Here it is, Scotty Doesn't Know by the band Lustra. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know that Fiona and me do it in my van every Sunday. She tells him she's in church, but she doesn't go. Still, she's on her knees, and Scotty doesn't know. Oh, Scotty doesn't know. So don't tell Scotty. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. Fiona says she's out shopping, but she's on her Scotty doesn't know, Scotty doesn't know, Scotty doesn't know, Scotty doesn't know. 
Hey, what's happening? This is Marco DeSantis from Sugar Cult, and you're listening to that one time on tour. Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of that one time on tour. We're back. Uh, I know it's been a while. Episode 9 was really, really cool with Tucker from Thursday. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, man, this podcast is a lot of fun. It took me a while to get this one up. Uh, I moved into a new house last weekend. And so it took me a while to get this one going. But uh, this is episode number 10. Marco DeSantis from Sugar Cult. Uh, he played in the Swinging Utters. He's in Bad Astronaut with Joey Kay from Lagwagon. He was in the Ataris. We share that. We're both ex-members of the Ataris. So before I get to the conversation with Marco, and it is a long one, so, you know, strap in. It's a long episode. I do want to tell you a short story. So we were moving last weekend, and uh, we get the my wife and my friend Jason and my friend Nate and I, we, we got the truck completely loaded up, ready to come to the new house. And we cannot find the keys to the U-Haul. I don't know if anybody's ever been there before, but that is not a good place to be. So we took most of the truck apart. We could not find the keys. Uh, I ended up having to go back to the U-Haul place, and they cut me another key because I had the insurance. So, I mean, we we got everything figured out. We got here. We unloaded everything. Still no key. A couple days later, opened up a new pack of diapers for my son. And uh, the box of diapers uh, that I opened up, the key to the U-Haul truck had fallen inside the box of diapers. So yeah, I felt really stupid. But uh, we got it all done. We're in our new house. We really like it. I've got a little podcast kind of studio area that I'm speaking from right now, uh, even though it is almost three in the morning because that's that's when I have to do this. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to give you a little bit of info and then I'm going to get right into the episode. So if you want to be a sponsor of the show, hit us up at TOTOTpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please follow us on all the social media platforms uh every social media platform is totot podcast so that's it i'm gonna get right into it episode 10 here it is my conversation with my buddy marco desantis from sugar cult hey marco what's going on man hey not much hey i'd like to i'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show man i really appreciate it dude i'm stoked thanks for having me this is awesome (laughs) Well, I, I do want to, the first thing that I'd like to, to say is that you and I kind of belong to a, an elite club. We were both ex-members of the Ataris. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that used to be sort of like something that was like unique, like, hey, I used to be in the Ataris, <laughs> but now it's kind of like, who wasn't in the Ataris? You know, that's the, the, the more elite club is the people who weren't in the Ataris. I used to always make, <laughs> always used to make the joke uh, when I, I quit the Ataris because I, I got some another opportunity and some other things happened. And I was kind of, I mean, I'm still friends with all the guys. There's no issues. But I used to always make the joke to Chris Rowe that, you know, we should uh, make shirts that say I used to be in the Ataris. And I said, we could make all kinds of money. <laughs> 
Dude, that's so rad. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Or future ex-member of the Ataris. Future That'd ex-member. Be... <laughs> yeah, every, every time you get into the Ataris, that, you, that should be in, like, the pack they give you when you, when you join. Dude, you know what's funny? Is, um, for, um, well, we'll, talk, we'll come back to that later, but I actually just reconnected with Chris. I mean, I've always been, you know, friends with him, but he, uh, he lives in L.A. now, and, and we just went out to lunch. You know, we just kind of reconnected, and then now we're like, we both did this thing called Emo Night that they do in L.A. We both... We were both guests on that, okay. and now we're going to both do this like after warped party in San Diego. It's like all of a sudden we're like back in each other's lives, and um, it's it's just such a trip, man. It's but cool. I remember it's, I, I posted that I was going to be speaking with you because I wanted to see. You know, I always put who I'm speaking with the week before the show comes out, and Chris actually got a hold of me. He's like, dude, I was just hanging out with him the other night. That's crazy. <laughs> That's so rad. It's such a small world. Um, but yeah, dude. Speaking of like that kind of thing is. Um, I for I think right after the Ataris, I played bass for a minute in a band called Nerf Herder from Santa Barbara. Oh yeah, I love Nerf Herder, man. Yeah, they're awesome. And I had, I had like grown up with those guys, and and I actually me and my friend had an indie label, and we put their first record out, and that's a whole that's a whole other podcast. But uh, <laughs> it was kind of like a t- total like trial by fire introduction to the music industry because I was literally like, you know, making phone calls out of my teenage bedroom at my mom's house in a cul-de-sac <laughs> in santa barbara in my boxer shorts and somehow got them on the radio that's crazy without you know complete fluke and then it blew up like gangbusters and there was like record companies sending limousines to bring fly me to new york and suddenly i found myself like being the guy the, at the other end of the phone when a band was getting discovered that's it was, awesome. it was like yeah it was a crazy crash like fluke crash course but a couple years later, Nerfurter needed a bass player, and I jumped in. And I played with them for a while, and then they needed a bass player again. I mean, they literally had like so many different bass players. And one day, I connected with Justin, who had played bass with them, and Charlie, and and this other guy, Pete. And I was like, "Dude, we should form an all Nerfurter tribute band. This <laughs> consists of all former Nerfurter bass players." And what we call it because you know tribute bands will will name themselves after like a band yeah. song or whatever yeah. i was like we'll just call it van halen because <laughs> nerfurter song was called van halen so that was my whole concept it's gonna be nerfurter bass players tribute nerfurter <laughs> tribute band called van halen that's awesome man <laughs> anyways i don't know no so that's so, no, that's, a, that's a great story i was kind of interested i mean we might bounce around a little bit on this podcast but oh dude that's that's the only way i know how to do it <laughs> with you and i both you know doing a tour of duty or two in the Ataris. Like, how did that come about? Because I know you joined fairly early on after Chris went out to California. Yeah. I mean, I literally, I literally was like, you, you hear people say like, I, I was doing that before it was cool. Like I was literally in the Ataris before it was cool to be in the Ataris. <laughs> and by, by before it was cool to be in the Ataris, I mean, before you could actually make any money being in the Ataris. Yeah, I got you. Man. <laughs> so yeah. Like, I mean, first of all, like, I mean, hopefully you have Chris on this show. If, you, if Chris is going to got... be on in a couple of weeks, I've already spoken with him. I mean, he was one of my first ones I was going to have on, but we just have had our schedules haven't met up right, you know. I mean, his story is just is so incredible, and, and it's funny because I do like like lectures at colleges and stuff about like the music business, and and one of the stories I always like to tell is is Chris Rowe because he literally was that kid in a small town in Indiana you know, um, figured out how to play guitar on his own. That's why he plays guitar upside down, <laughs> Yeah. you know? And, um, and then would like run an extension cord out of his parents' house into his car and make four track recordings. Cause he was too embarrassed to have his parents hear him sing. Yeah. So he'd like record in his car and he made that first, like the demos for that first record. 
And then he would drive to shows and give the tape. He was like that kid at shows just giving his tape to bands and hoping they would listen to it. And he gave it to the Vandals, and they actually listened to it. And Joe from the Vandals was starting a label. And, I mean, I'll let him tell the story better, but, like, um, somehow he got signed to Kung Fu Records, just, you know, and then he had to put a band together. And he moved to California because his... Um, he had gotten Derek Plord, who was the drummer of Lag, who was a former drummer of Lagwag, and he had yeah. gotten him to play on the record. And then Derek moved out to Indiana to, to continue to play in the band, but realized he didn't really want to live in Indiana. Yeah. So he was like, "Dude, I'm moving back to Santa Barbara. You're you're welcome to come with me and or follow me out there." You know, and so Chris actually did. He moved to Santa Barbara, and I met him the day he moved to Santa Barbara. Wow. We were at a punk rock show in the people's park in Isla Vista. Uh, I think it was the band. The other was playing. Okay. Um, that's the other was like the, all the guys from RKL in a different configuration doing like really like almost like minute men style, like kind of jazzy punk rock. Awesome. It, was, it was pretty rad. But anyway, they're playing in this outdoor park. Um, I see this kid come up to me talking a mile a minute and he's like, Hey dude, Derek, uh, my drummer and I'm, I'm, I'm from, uh, I'm from Indiana. I just moved here and I got a, I got a record coming out and we got some tour dates. And I mean, he was like super forward. Like he, <laughs> he like just like right after introducing himself, he was like asking me if I would join the band. Um, and I was like, fuck it. Sure. <laughs> you know, like back then you're just like, what, what, what have I got to lose? Yeah, you know? definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So that's how it came across. That, that's how it came about, I should say. And, and next thing you know, I was, I was in a van with Derek, um, the drummer, you know, and Derek and I, to give you a little backstory, we actually grew up together in the same neighborhood and started playing music together. Like we were our first punk band ever was a band called Illiterate. And I was I was making up the songs and playing guitar. And, and Derek was just like a kid in our neighborhood who could skateboard and would hang out at our practices. And it was just me and the drummer at first. And then one day I was like, hey, Derek, just get a bass so you can be because we need a bassist and that's how you formed bands when you were children you know oh, yeah. you just like got your friends to like you know hey hey banks steal a microphone from the band room at your school and you're our singer read this teenage poetry that i just wrote cool scream <laughs> it really loud derek um watch my index finger and just follow along okay now you're the bass player and that's how we started our first band and then derek being the kind of guy he was you, we all have that friend that, like, as soon as he picks something up, he just gets really good at it. Yeah. He could, like, within about a month, he could play circles around me on guitar, circles around our drummer on drums, and he could work a four-track, and he could write songs. And it was like, instantly, he became the best musician in the band. That's crazy. Man. And eventually, we formed another band because we didn't have the heart to tell our drummer that Derek was better than him, and we wanted Derek to play drums. <laughs> so we just... We just one summer we said, okay, let's shuffle the deck. And instead of me playing guitar, I'll play bass. Instead of Dave playing drums, Dave will sing. Instead of Derek playing bass, Derek will play drums. So we just kind of did musical chairs as a passive aggressive way to get <laughs> Derek on drums. And we started another band, and that band eventually, in a really convoluted way, and I sound like I'm probably like 75 years old here, <laughs> but that band eventually got. Um, got sort of hijacked by the singer of another local Santa Barbara band. Um, uh, there was a speed metal band, like kind of an anthrax crossover speed metal band okay. called Chemical. And their singer was probably about like, you know, he was like a generation older than us. Um, but he was like, you know, super cool and had a leather jacket and kind of looked like Didi Ramone and had a car and had a cute girlfriend. And he um, eventually like moved into the band and got, us to kick out our singer and he took over the band and, t and um, 
that band, long story short, became Lagwagon. <laughs> really? That's crazy, yeah. man. So we were we had started a band called Section Eight, and that band evolved. So wait, you into said what that you said Lagwagon. that you said that guy sang. So are you talking about Joey? Yeah. Joey Cape. So you're talking about Joey Cape. Okay. That's yeah. A, that's awesome. Man. So there's a real, it's, this is a, we're talking about um, to understand the story. Cause, cause most people who know me in popular culture know me because of sugar cult, yeah. which you have to understand is sugar cult was like, was like a hail Mary at the, at the tail end of, of like, you know, a musical quest that started when I was probably like 12 years old and, yeah. you know, and just a sub- suburban, you know, punk band, neighborhood punk band in Santa Barbara. And from that little group of people in Santa Barbara, which is a really small town, if you've ever been there. I've been there, yeah. Um, um, you know, you have like kids that are, I mean, Santa Barbara seems like, like at this stage of my life, it's like a place you would go and like on vacation, right? But like when you're growing up there, I'm sure kids all over the world can relate. Like when you're in a town, especially if it's like a town, other people like to come to go on vacation, you when you live there, you're usually pretty fucking bored. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that's just part of being a kid. You know, you when you're a teenager, you're just it's like the condition of being a teen is you're just kind of like dissatisfied with whatever your you know reality is. And I think it has a lot to I, do with it because I think you know the grass is always greener. Like I grew up in Indiana, and I always was kind of like, oh Indiana, I want to move out west. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then. I've spent time in other places that were, you know, quote unquote, more exciting. And I find myself back in Indiana because it's home. Right, right. And that's the, that's the weird thing. It's like you, you spend your early years working to get out of where you are so you can go, you know, shake hands with the world. Yeah. And then when you, on the way back, you're like, okay, now how do I find my way home? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know? I hope I love some breadcrumbs, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but anyways, um, so the thing about Santa Barbara is it's such a small town and it was kind of seen as like a secondary or tertiary market. So like meaning like in the concert industry, like concerts that would bands that would tour would like play L.A. and then drive straight to San Francisco. Yeah. Well, once in a while we would we would pick up the like the, the odd band that would like stop and play in Santa Barbara on their way between those cities. So we were like just so hungry. We would just go see everything. You know, it wasn't like you just. It, we didn't our town wasn't big enough to have have like denominational music scenes it wasn't like the hardcore scene the ska scene the punk scene the yeah. metal scene it was just the music scene so you had like lynn Strait at the same no effect show as you know lynn Strait would go on to become the singer of a snot of a, right? like Ozfest band called snot yeah i remember i remember Joey hearing K. that they knew like they were somehow you know connected to the guys from Lagwagon. i remember reading that back in the day because my friend i was always like punk rock guy and i, I had friends that were new metal guys and my friend was trying to sell me on snot like no dude they're friends with Lagwagon. <laughs> yeah their singer was a was a complete you know 100 percent punk rocker like and i and i mean like he was one of the first kids like when I was a little kid, you know, walking on the main drag, like there was like the the classic, you know, just big bench in front of the video arcade in the 80s where you would see like this really scary looking dudes with like, you know, triple mohawks and Liberty Spikes and, you know. And when when punk rock, I mean, I'm I'm sounding totally like the get off my lawn kids today, but like there was a time when when looking punk rock being punk rock, thinking punk rock, 
could actually, you know, was a real was a real statement and it was a real threat yeah. to a lot of people. I mean, people would get people would get assaulted just for walking on the street with um, you know, with a mohawk. <laughs> you know, just for the way they look. And that's that's something that like I try to explain that to people um to you know kids today and it's like it's like that's just like unthinkable it's like seriously punk rock what are you talking about like you know that's just another you know option at the you know whatever at, at the, the mall <laughs> at the mall <laughs> you know and uh and you're like no oh, well you know like everything else like jazz like modern dance like um modern art you know these things were you know, someone had to go through the forest with a machete. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, kill all the fucking monsters and clear the path. And that's what these guys were doing. Lynn Strait, RKL. Um, there was another band in my hometown called Rat Pack. And unfortunately, because they were at the front line and they all went through and and did this shit. Not only did they, n- none of them really ever got paid, but most of them also got like, you know, they got like drug habits and a lot of them died, you know, it's just really sad because we were able to like kind of enjoy the scene that they created. You know, they kind of went out there and like just flailed around and, and created some kind of, some kind of like structure so that we could go back in our generation could go in, you know, me and my friends and like put a deposit down and play a show at the red barn, you know, but those guys were the ones who like made it a thing to do. And, and same, you know, can have the same conversation with Billy Joe, same thing with Green Day. Their version of of Santa Barbara was the East Bay, and their version of RKL was off Ivy. Yeah. So, so what was uh, like when you were growing up in Santa Barbara, and you know you, you're talking about going to these shows and whatnot? Was music just always a part of your life, or like do you have like one thing you can remember that like set you on that path a little bit? Um, I mean, it's you know, probably. I mean that's a good question, but I never really thought about it. I went to my I went to my first concert. Well, actually when I was in elementary school, one of my friends was uh this guy named Even Caston and his older brother had a band and I remember they played like in our auditorium. There was like two local bands in Santa Barbara. There was a band called The Tan and there was a band called Giant Eden. And I remember The Tan were like, to us, they were like the band from Santa Barbara that had made it. Like them and RKL because they had like a seven inch out. (laughs) So like if you had a seven inch, you know, pressed up on, you know, then you were pretty much like, you might as well have been fucking rock star, you know, in the eyes of, of the mind of, children you know we're like okay you're you're a grown you're a full grown you know you're probably these guys are probably 18 but to us they might as well have been like 36 <laughs> yeah. you know like you're a full grown man and you have um you you have a band with you know you have electric guitars and you have a product available that's shrink wrapped so therefore <laughs> you might as well be the fucking rolling stones you know what i mean shrink wrapping used to be the biggest thing i remember when my first band out of high school we first like the first time we really had like a product that was shrunk wrapped like i thought okay this is it man we've got a real cd shrunk wrapped. right totally and <laughs> yeah. that's the thing like that was like to me that was kind of the thing i was seeing a, a band play and then being able to go to my friend's house for like a sleepover and see like his older brother like with like a telly on a stand that you could actually like go up close to and you know 
be like, whoa, there's a guitar up close. So that's probably what the first thing that planted the seed. And then I was just that kid. I was, I was that kid who would like take the bus to the record store, ride my bike and just be the, you know, hang out in the record store forever, hang out in the guitar shop and never actually buy anything. But I just like ask a million questions and just geek out, like flip through records um, and look at the, you know, I'd look at the back and wonder like what a producer was, wonder what the people, who the people were in the special thanks list. I'm just kind of obsessed with music really as a fan and then started playing, um, you know, just started playing and I, and I, you know, it was really, really bad. And it's really, guitars are really, uh, you know, there's a real, like, they're very oppressive to learn because it hurts yeah. and it's frustrating. And the guitars you can afford when you're a little kid don't stay in tune. No, and it never, nothing ever sounds like the thing you are trying to do. You know, if you like get the tablature for something, you try to figure out like a, and, and so it's really like a pre- hard to do. And so I think I tried for a while and then kind of lost interest and then picked it up again. And I mean, this sounds so like, uh, you know, this sounds so trite at this point, but it was like trying to learn like, you know, classic rock and, and metal stuff that, you know, everyone who picks up a guitar first is interested in. And then my, I had like the, the, I had the, the proverbial kid with like terrible skin who sat in front of me in one of my classes in middle school. And he would make me like, um, he was kind of like trying to, he was like a punk rock evangelist. Like he was trying to <laughs> convert me into punk rock and he was making me tapes of suicidal tendencies and um, the Descendants and Black Flag, and then DRI, and it was just like I started learning those songs, and I was like, God, this is so like fun. I can do this right away. And then me and my friend, then I, we moved to a neighborhood, and like you know, that's when I started that band with my friend Dave, just because he had to have a drum kit, and we would just sit around playing like two chord like wannabe DRI songs, <laughs> and then you just do what I you know what I like to call flunk upwards. You just you get. You, you fuck up, you get frustrated, or, um, and then you just get better because you're sick of sucking. And yeah. and then your friend, like, and then you have your, you know, your friends are getting better, so you want to get better because you want to keep up. It's like it's like anything, like skateboarding or sports or anything kids do. You don't want to be the one who like can't keep up, so you so you you know practice more or whatever. And I don't know. I don't think any of us ever became that great at playing. But what we did was. We, f- we started bands and we and we started playing shows before we were probably ready yeah and that really helped because there's there's just nothing like the um you know uh the old saying jump and the net will appear I, th- I think it's important to to do it before you're ready to do it and that way you um it accelerates the you get the adrenaline you know and, and it accelerates your you know you're like oh shit we actually played that show and we and people liked it okay now we got a really fucking uh, you know, that puts momentum in your in your thing you know were you guys doing a lot of originals at that point or just a lot of covers i remember my first band our first show that we ever had i mean we jumped in early like you said like i think we had two or three originals and the rest of the songs were all covers no see that's the thing with us is like we were it, we kind of defaulted to originals because we are we we I don't know in my like thirteen year old mind it was like okay we can either play this cover and out ourselves how, at how bad we are by <laughs> you know by sounding so terrible trying to play a song people actually know or we can play an original and no one's gonna ever know that it's not supposed to be that shitty you know what I mean <laughs> so we we ended up doing the originals. Cause it was just easier to like make up our own songs 
and play them to our abilities than to try to play terrible versions of songs other people already liked. I, I wish I would have known that when I first started my first band. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Again, grass is always greener. Like one of my like consistent frustrations as an you know in my adult years is that I'm like, man, it's funny because me and my friends get together every once in a while and like put together like like just a party for a, for a friend's party or whatever. We'll get together old friends and like learn a bunch of covers. And we're all, we all have that thing. Like all of us that grew up in Santa Barbara, we're like, man, I don't know if you're thinking this, but I'm thinking this. Don't you wish we would have played in cover bands back then instead of the original bands? Cause it's, there's, it's so fun to learn those songs and you really do like walk in someone else's shoes yeah. and it, you know, increases your vocabulary a lot. So I kind of, in retrospect, regret not being in cover bands when I was a kid, you know, not learning. All. And plus, I, you know, I'm no fun at the camp. If you go camping with me, I'm not the guy who can like grab a guitar and be a human jukebox. You know? Well, yeah, I, I'm not that guy either, unless they want to hear like no effects Metallica songs. <laughs> That's I know. It. <laughs> it's like, fuck, you could play fade to black, yeah. uh, you know, and then just, and just totally kill the vibe. <laughs> you know? People always like whenever I'm at a campfire, I'm at a friend's house where there's an acoustic guitar. They're like, play something. I'm like, well, what do you want me to play? They're like play like brown eyed girl. I'm like, I don't know how to play that. <laughs> I can play. I can Except play. for you do, because Lagwagon turned it into a Lagwagon. You can play That's the Lagwagon true. version. I should it. play the Lagwagon version. I always like that version. The only version I like. Oh actually. man! But anyways, dude. So yeah. So it was, it was a town. You know, like a lot of people. Um, it's a small town, and so anyone who who is like a weirdo or a misfit or into music, you know, we all ended up pretty much kind of playing in bands. It was very incestuous. We all, you know played in bands with each other, shared the same gear, played on the same shows, dated the same like three girls. It was, it was a very, it was that town, you know? And, and, and I'm proud of it. Cause I think about it. I go, man, out of our little, our little puddle, we have, you know, Chris from the Foo Fighters. Chris Schiffler is a guitarist of the Foo Fighters. You know, I grew up playing in bands with him. We've got Lagwagon who, who, you know, are at this point legends, Definitely, you know, yeah. um, no effects actually like, lived in Santa Barbara for a little while, or they kind of operated out of Santa Barbara for a while um, early on. Same, you know, with Chris Rowe, he moved out there and, and kind of used Santa Barbara is where the Ataris kind of came of age. Yeah. Um, Mad Caddies, Nerf Herder, um, Toad the Wet Sprocket, you know, there's, there's <laughs> and, it, and, and I got to say, like, even Toad the Wet Sprocket, like, I have a flyer that would blow your mind. It's Toad the Wet Sprocket and No Effects. Really? And the and this band called the Eye Rails, and they were playing at this tiny little, um, this tiny little, like, sort of, if it was around today, it would be like the the vegan single origin coffee house. But back then, I don't know if they, if they even had a name for something like that. But it was just a sort of place in the college town called Javon's. And bands would play there, like mostly reggae bands. But for some reason, it was like No Effects, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and the Eye Rails. The Eye Rails eventually became this band that had like a one-hit wonder, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Called um, They were called Primitive Radio Gods. They changed their name to that. Anyways, it's just a trip how many like bands from Santa Barbara and bands that were like sort of adopted Santa Barbara ended up doing something. Because I'm telling you, if you ever go to Santa Barbara, it's like, a tiny little town and there's like three places to play <laughs> you know it's not like this hotbed of music culture you know so there's also a huge like hardcore you know there was um steve aoki who's now like a huge edm dj yeah he went to college in santa barbara and he had an apartment and he called his apartment the pickle patch and he would put on hardcore shows there like literally it was like 
in book your own fucking life and the maximum rock and roll thing and like everyone would just play when hardcore bands would play in santa barbara they would play at the pickle patch that's awesome you man. know and then you know then eventually he started dim Mock and then moved to la and started djing in order to play his dim Mock releases and then the rest is history now he's like a huge dj it's, it's such a trip dude. Well, i remember it's... seeing too uh something on the internet maybe like last year or so like he he was at a festival that no effects was at in Europe and like they actually hung out and like Fat Mike was on stage with him when he was when he was doing his DJ set. I w- I thought that was cool because it's like, you know, those guys give a DJ their stamp of approval, then maybe I'll check that DJ out. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's funny because, um, well, I mean, obviously Skrillex was in like a screamo band too. Yeah, I toured with well, I toured with him when he was like fifteen. When I, I played in a band called Brazil, we were on Fearless Records and we did a tour with from first to last. And when Sonny was like. 14 or 15 man and now he's skrillex and he's huge you know i know it's crazy dude it's awesome i remember we were on that warp tour i think sugar called the, the warp tour 2004 and from first to last was on it and he was like yeah 14 or 15 and it was just like but you know it's one of those things where you you go even then he had that sort of undefinable something you know like he was kind of just a lightning rod for you know everyone everyone thought he was a cool dude and fun and funny and you know he killed it on stage and, um, you know, he's, I, I think it's like, as you know, I mean, I, I hate to even use this word as an adjective, but like, I think it's super punk rock, <laughs> you know, he's one of the most punk rock dudes out there to just be like, you know what the thing I should do is start another screamo band. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a DJ and change my name. Like that's fucking rad. And then he also pulled it, you know? Well, he used to play me like on tour. Like we got to be fairly close on that tour. It was like in like a two or three month tour and he used to like pull me aside and go hey man listen to this tell me what you think and it was just all these weird noises and like beats and like i didn't get it at the time <laughs> and then of course you know now i hear yeah, it, and i'm like oh yeah. man it's it's the biggest thing in the world he's huge and yeah i mean he had he had the the drive and the passion and he just had that idea that this is gonna hit maybe he didn't know if it was gonna hit but i mean he's he's a very talented right. talented guy which is man. probably why it hit yeah. <laughs> you know yeah like that's the fucking you i think you might have just nailed it right there you know um one of the things i that drives me crazy about the music scene in general the music industry i should say is that people are are going at it in my i don't know if i'm old-fashioned or what but like in my opinion they're going at it the wrong way they're going like hey what do we have to do to make it and it's like that's like that's like when you say, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to go out and try to get, I'm going to go out and get laid. Like if you go out and try to get laid, you're not going to get laid, you know, because yeah. you're just going to like send off the wrong energy. You're going to repel. You're not going to be like magnetic and attract. You're going to like do the opposite because you're, because people just look at like, they look at you and go, that guy's trying too hard. You know, it's like, if you do something for the love of it, because you love it, then that's going to be, what's going to happen is that's going to magnetize and people are going to start going to that that's fucking rad. What's up with that? And you go, really that? And then people are going to like, you know, that's what I think someone like Skrillex did and why it worked is because he, he did it because he was fascinated by it. And that fascination becomes contagious. And if the music's good, people are going to be interested in it. And then eventually it's going to become a thing. Same thing with Steve Aoki. It's like, he's just like a dude who wanted to make a scene. He's like, you know what, dude, I have an apartment. I'm going to, I just, I'm just going to write off the cleaning deposit and have shows here. And Jimmy World played there, Boys That's Fire played there. So many bands came through and played there on their way up. And so he had this amazing um, network of, and I think he played in a band too. And when you go see his DJ thing, he's up there going like, he's not just like 
the guy with a baseball hat looking down, he's like got his shirt off and he's like running, jumping in the crowd. You, it's like you go, that guy, that guy grew up in hardcore. <laughs> you know, he's taking the hardcore attitude and bringing it to another audience, which I think is super fucking cool. I think that's one. I mean, honestly, like that was what I was thinking when Sugar Cult came about. I was thinking I'd played in the Ataris, I'd played in Nerford, I'd played in Swing and Utters. Somehow I found myself in this kind of punk rock community, which is awesome because to me it was just inextricably linked to the town I grew up in because that's how we could go to shows. We could either go see like Motley Crue at the Forum in LA if someone's mom would drive us down, or we could go see like maybe like, you know, some huge like Dio play. Yeah. Or we could go to a Chinese restaurant or a fucking youth center and see a bunch of bands like Excel and NoFX and whoever, you know, like this, uh, the punk bands of, of the time. And, like, to me, that was the epiphany. It was like I, I kind of did both. I, I really enjoyed going to the big spectacle and seeing, like, a big show at the Long Beach Arena or the Forum or whatever. But then when I started going to punk shows, I was like, dude, this is so fucking crazy because – to get back to your original question, like that was probably the moment where I realized I could actually do this. Cause when you see shit on MTV and you see stuff from far back at the forum, it looks like superheroes. Yeah. But when you see a band play at like the red barn or some fucking, you know, VFW hall, then it's like one minute you're watching these guys play the next minute you're helping them load their gear into their van and like standing next to them, watching the next band. And that's like, kind of mind-blowing as a kid when you when your first introduction to music was like seeing it on mtv or seeing it from far back at a, with lasers and ramps and fucking mascots dressed like you know so it's that's like a that's a that's a mind blower the problem is is when it becomes a fucking um when it when it becomes kind of like a too much of a tradition and you feel like oh in order to be punk i've got to sound like this and i've got to dress <laughs> like this and i've yeah. got to think like this so I just got tired of that after a while. And I was like, dude, there's lots of, you know, I love all kinds of music. And I was interested in more like, you know, um, Elvis Costello and like power pop. Um, you know, I always loved Cheap Trick. And um, and uh, when I met the dudes from Sugar Cult, I actually saw them opening for one of my favorite bands of all time, Super Drag. And, and I see this guy up there singing, and I'm like, God, this kid reminds me of Elvis Costello. What the fuck? He's wearing a suit. He's playing a fucking <laughs> um, jazz master, and he is singing like power pop, but he looks like he's like fucking 18. So I went up to him, and I was like, what's up? And he's like, hey, what's up? I'm Tim. And we just kind of made friends. And, um, and by then, I was kind of identifying myself as a bass player, and, and I kind of said to him, like, yo, dude, we should jam sometime. It's too bad you already have. Let me know if your bass player ever doesn't work out or something. You know, it was just kind of a casual thing to exchange numbers. And then we would talk on the phone, make each other like it was very kind of like boyfriend, girlfriend kind of stuff. Like <laughs> yeah. we'd talk on the phone for hours, make each other like mix CDs, you know, and I and and I could tell he like sort of was like, fuck, why didn't I meet this guy before I got this other guy playing bass? You know, because we were hitting it off so hard. And then one day, um, one day um he called me up and he's like hey dude um would you ever want to try playing guitar um because i'm thinking about adding a guitar player to this situation this little trio and and i was like dude that sounds like fun and it's funny because i just told my um 
I had just told my girlfriend at the time, I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I'm done like pursuing this music career thing because it just seems like it never works out. I did the Ataris for a while. That didn't work out. I did the Nerf Herder thing for a while. That didn't work out. I had a band called Popsico. Our singer died. Everything I'm doing, you know, all these bands I've had, and I've been doing this since I was a kid. Maybe it's just like, maybe it's time for me to just like surrender um, and stop trying to make it in music. Yeah. And just kind of go back to just fucking around and maybe try to become a grown up or something, you know? <laughs> and so that's when this happened. That's when he called me and I was like, okay, well, there it is right there. Perfect. I'm not pursuing music seriously anymore but this is perfect because i'm going to be playing guitar and that's not my primary instrument anymore so if nothing else i'll just get it'll be an excuse to jam with some guys and get better at guitar um you know and that's perfect because now i don't have to worry about trying to you know make it big you know they weren't signed at that point right they were just kind of like no it was brand new you know they'd been jamming for a couple months and we were just in santa barbara they were kids that were going to santa barbara community college okay or santa barbara city college it's called and i was just like working at the fucking local record store and playing with some other dudes and just kind of fucking around but but i'd like you know i had done so many things dude i had, had my own record label i was promoting shows i was doing um a, you know like a local music radio show on Sunday nights. I was writing show reviews for the paper. I was just the big fish in a small pond, you know, like I felt like I tried everything in Santa Barbara and nothing seems to be working. So I was just kind of at this point where I was literally like not really trying anymore. And then, like I said before, when you don't try, when you just do it for the love of it, lo and behold, that's when shit fucking happens. Yeah. And we, I went in with no expectations other than just to jam on guitar and try to become a better guitar player and kind of fall back in love with playing guitar instead of bass, play with these guys. And then I got in the room with them and it was like all the things I, I was always frustrated with with my other bands, like the other guys wanting to cut practice short or no one really having a work ethic. These guys were the opposite. They were like, I'm not tired. Are you tired? Let's keep going. Fuck, you want to run the set again? Yeah, let's run it twice. Um, hey, it's two in the morning. I got to work in the morning. Should we uh, go home? No, let's fucking run the set again. Like these guys were monsters. And yeah. it was almost like military. Like the drummer fucking lived in the rehearsal space. And we would just, you know, he would record us. We would record us playing the songs and then go sit around and listen and like sit in a circle and listen to the songs and make improvements. I mean, it was almost like, and they just had this like aesthetic too. It was like, okay, let's make sure we, you know, dress really fucking cool when we play. No one's allowed to wear shorts. No one's allowed to wear blue jeans. We got to fucking be like, you know, military. Like the Ramones had like a military dress code the way they played. Like we were like fucking black suits. You know, we, we had like, a, we were trying to like kind of put a little bit of the romance back into it. You yeah. Know? We were also really into that band, International Noise Conspiracy. I like their aesthetic a lot. And we're like, dude, we could take a lot of the cool shit we're learning from all these other bands, but like actually pair it with like good, like power pop. And, and we, we had a very specific vision. It was like early, early 80s power pop, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Joe Jackson, and maybe like some 70s punk like The Clash and maybe Blondie mixed with... Foo Fighters, Green Day, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, mix, mixed with 90s radio, because that's yeah. what our singer grew up listening to, you know? And um, and that was, like, what we were just doing. And maybe, like, the cars were an influence, too. And we just fucking went for it. And 
you know, within a short amount of time became, you know, pretty successful in our hometown. And then it just started to trickle down. Like people would hear about it. And next thing you know, people in LA were having us play. And next thing you know, like record companies were checking us out. And I don't know, it was, it was all very organic. And, um, and it was, you know, it was super fun. But the, the best thing about it from, in my mind was like, I thought, okay, well, I'm letting go of the side of the pool that makes me feel like I have to be in like a, you know, punk band and kind of going into this like power pop thing. And then what happened in the end was we ended up getting the Warped Tour 2001 and I thought no one would like it. I was like, dude, this band sounds like super drag and no one's going to like this band. And we went out there and it just so happened that at that time people were really getting into like more poppy punk you know, yeah. and they kind of adopted us. And we're like, dude, we love Sugar Cult. You guys were like, Jimmy Eat World meets Green Day. And we're like, <laughs> okay, fuck it. Just go with it. Shut up. Don't say anything. Let's go. You know, <laughs> and we just fucking, and everyone loved it. And then we're like, next thing you know, we're getting asked to go on tour with Good Charlotte and Blink-182 and Newfound Glory and Sum 41. And all these bands are like, dude, will you guys open for us? We met you on the Warp Tour. And we, and we were off to the races. And we're like, fuck it, man. You know, let's just. Let's, but one the one thing we did say was like, hey, dude, this subculture is adopting us. These kids are buying our records and buying our shirts, and these bands are taking us on tour. But let's not uh, let's not abandon who we are. Yeah. Let's not start dressing like them. Let's not start making like dick jokes on stage <laughs> and doing unison jumps and wearing baggy shorts and doing all that shit. No disrespect to the bands that do that shit, but I was like, let's be who we are within this fucking scene you know what i mean and sort of and i love that we i think also like you know when you are a musician and you're in like a punk band or a power pop band like you always think about the genre but like the general public like listening when they hear sugar cult and then they hear like a pop punk band that's maybe a little bit different than what you guys are i think they probably just hear a band with loud guitars that plays fast sometimes (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I mean, it always kind of like confused me because it, it confused me because people, I mean, you know, I, I don't really care anymore, but like there was a time where it really bothered me. I was like, no, I don't want to be called pop punk if that means we sound like those bands. That's not what we're going for at all, you know? And then you realize you're like, what a fucking wasted time and waste of energy. Call It's like, call it whatever the fuck you want. You know, it's yeah. like, I'm pretty sure Guns N' Roses didn't want to be called a heavy metal band either, you know? And I'm pretty sure, you know, you know, it's just like what, what they're going to categorize. Is it, um, it's all right. It's all, it's all whatever. It's just, you know, humans have this like rage for order and we have to be able to wrap our head around something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like that, that old Woody Allen thing, um, Annie Hall, I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member, you know? <laughs> yeah. I just didn't like the, the, the notion that like we're getting lumped in with a genre. Um, especially if it's not a particularly a genre that any of us really had any, you know, um, you know, connection to necessarily. Um, and so, you know, it's enough, but that was like the beauty of, of our band is it was like four guys that you, you couldn't be more different as people, you know, maybe me and our singer shared a lot of the same aesthetic. Um, but there's still a lot of places where, where we completely differ. Like for instance, Tim fucking hate, the blues you know and he doesn't like necessarily 
it, like to listen to like so much of the shit I love. Like I love like trashy old like Rolling Stones and New York Dolls and seventies Aerosmith, and then I love shit like Jawbreaker um, and and like Bright Eyes and Elliot Smith, and those are all things that would make Tim's fucking skin crawl. Tim's our singer, right? <laughs> yeah. Tim likes uh, he likes things like. He, you know, he liked Third Eye Blind and like Everclear and shit like that. That at the time I was like, oh my God, I can't even fucking, <laughs> like, we can't even fucking be friends, bro. You know? And then after a while you calm down a little bit and you realize you're like, all right, yeah, those guys are pretty cool. They have some yeah. songs. Okay. Uh, you know, like, it's just when you're young, you just get so fucking like aggro about shit like that. But at the same time, the things we did have in common, we all loved Nirvana. You know, that was one of the things everyone in our band loved. And that's pretty much the only thing we all loved was Nirvana. <laughs> like the only band all four of us could agree on was probably Nirvana. Well, I think it helps for a pretty, you know, original sound when everybody in the band listens to different things. I know that every band I've ever been in, you know, most of them have been around the the punk rock kind of metal kind of sound. But everybody in the band listens to different things and there's all those different influences. So I think that probably helped you guys out a little bit. Right. And that well that was a that was a very Santa Barbara thing because there was just simply weren't enough people in our town. So you had to sort of like convert your friends into the shit you you know, like our bass player was into like, you know, he was into like the chili peppers and like, you know, pretty like muso kind of stuff. He was in Radiohead and stuff like that. And we would have to like, you know, I mean, part of the reason we had, we enforced a dress code, but in our band when we first started was because we were worried that if we didn't, our bass player would show up wearing some like wacky fucking thing, you know, <laughs> because he was coming from such a different place. And it was, it was hard enough just to get him to like, you know, play with a pick. Yeah. Cause we were worried like, Oh my God, what if he wants to, like fucking slap you know so you know a lot of the moves we made were just to make sure our band could at least like have some focus because because you you got to be careful because if it's like a bunch of people that like all different types of music then it can end up just being really scatterbrained and unfocused and you know we we certainly weren't about to become like some hybrid band like you know, with a million different, you know, we, we weren't going to be like 311 or something where like you've got like reggae and and metal and, you know, funk. And, you know, so we're, so it was, it, you know, we kind of made us, we narrowed our vision and, and we we're like, look, these are the, um, this is this, let's, let's make the container pretty small. Like, like I always loved the white stripes that there was like, okay, we have guitar and drums and black and red and white. That's the crayons we have. Yeah. Go be creative within that small container, you know. And I think that's a good thing. It's, I think the sort of like anything goes pastiche th thing. It's it ends up being like it seems like a good idea at the time. It's like I'll, the analogy I'll give is like um, all, all you can eat buffet in Las Vegas, where it seems like a good idea at the time, and then later you totally regret it. You're like, why did I need to fucking have like crab legs and pizza and sushi <laughs> and chocolate mousse and oysters and a fucking breakfast burrito and all you know all these things are good on their own but all together at the same time it's a fucking it's a disaster yeah. <laughs> so you guys you guys were the opening act on the green day american idiot tour i, I saw that i just wanted to ask you kind of like was that your first, like, did you know those guys prior or, or like, how did you get asked to do that? That's a pretty huge tour. Well, um, dude, that, that was, that was amazing. 
And that was an amazing experience on, on many levels. Um, I mean, on its face, we got to fucking open for Green Day on American Idiot, you know? But deeper down, it was like Green Day, uh, growing up in Santa Barbara, I had a friend named Mike, and he moved up. Um, he moved up to the Bay Area and he would communicate because, you know, this is before we all had social media and Facebook and all that shit. But he, we would com- stay in touch by writing each other letters and he would send me mixtapes. And I was like, dude, send me mixtapes of all the cool bands you discover when you're up in the Bay Area. And he would send me like Crimp Shrine and, the, um, you know, uh, all those fucking bands up there. And he, he turned me on to Jawbreaker, turned me on to Green Day. Um what was the other band? Fuck, they were so good. Um, Op Ivy. Op Ivy was a few years like they were like like I said, they were the sort of arcade of that scene. They were like the the you know the forefathers. So these were this was like the next generation, like people like they were in my generation. Um, you know, so Green Day, um, Monsula, Crimp Shrine. Um, I think there was a band called the Winona Riders. There was a band called and um, Jawbreaker. You know, Jawbreaker is a, a tough thing to wrap your head around because they were like guys from LA that formed their band in, while they were going to NYU and then moved to San Francisco. So no one really knows where the fuck Jawbreaker's from, but at the time they were from San Francisco, right? So I was getting all these tapes from this dude and and this band Green Day was on them and I was like, fuck, this band's fucking, like just right away you knew they stood out. You know, like, this is the better band on this fucking mixtape. And then they'd come through my town, I'd go see him play. And they were, you know, this at this point it was like Kerplunk era, so they were still on lookout. And then they got a huge record deal, and that was like a time where you saw a band go from like, you know, a band that would load their own gear, show up in a van, unload, play their shit, load their stuff up, and then crack beers with you at the apartment across the street in the driveway, you know. Then you saw them on MTV, and you're like, holy shit, those guys, no fucking way, that's so rad. And you're like kind of rooting for them. There was a whole other contingent of people going, fuck you, Green Day, you're sellouts. But me and my friends were like, dude, how fucking rad is that? Those guys are like infiltrating the system. This is like the fucking Trojan horse, you know, invading the kingdom. You know, this is like I saw it as a positive that punk rock penetrated the mainstream, you know, because I never liked the idea. I mean, of course, we all like the idea of having a best kept secret. and But at the same time, that's selfish. I'm like, dude, this shit is too fucking, you know, it's like some secrets are too good to keep this this like skateboarding and hip-hop and so many other subculture things are just too fucking too awesome to hide from the mainstream you gotta fucking impregnate the mainstream with this with this fucking dna you know because it's it's only gonna make good things happen in the future and so like when green day became mainstream it was like fuck yeah go and i had another band in santa barbara at the time and we got to open for green day on the dookie tour when they came through our town and we met them, and they were super cool guys. Um, and then fast forward years later to Sugar Cult, we were in 2001. We played some radio festival on the East Coast um, in Connecticut, I think. And it was um, it intersected with a tour that was called the Pop Disaster Tour, which was really a watershed moment for Green Day. Because Green Day, if you remember, had kind of gone down in popularity. Like People kind of started like cooling on Green Day, and Blink-182 were kind of reigning as the kings of the mainstream punk scene so blink did a tour where they took green day out as a kind of you know kind of a co-headlining but really direct support and they had jimmy so it was it was a great bill it was blink 182 green day jimmy world right so 
don't know if you've ever seen Blink-182 play. Yeah, yeah, Super yeah. Super cool guys, catchy songs. Definitely. Not the best musician <laughs> in the world other than Travis. Okay, so you'd see him play, and, like, Tom's voice and his guitar playing, it was, it was a little bit sketch. And But Green Day, like, literally, they can fucking plug direct with no pedal boards, plug direct into a Marshall, JCM 800, and sound exactly like the fucking record. Yeah. You know? Like, they're one of those bands. Like, they could set up in your fucking living room and sound just like their fucking record. And so they went out there and just basically, like, blew away all of Green or all of Blink-182's fans who maybe were too young to catch them the first time around. And that's what set the stage for American Idiot to happen. Because, um, you know, so at that point, we got to play a show at a festival on the East Coast with it. Like it was an, it was happening on the same grounds as the Pop Disaster Tour. So they just combined it. And so at that show, Green Day, like invited us for like, you know, onto their bus for a drink. And they were like, dude, we're aware of your band. We think you guys are cool. What's up? You know, and we like drank a bottle of wine with them. And, and it was super cool. And of course, like, I just bit my tongue. I didn't want to be like, dude, I met you guys, you know, however many years ago in Santa Barbara. I just, I just shut the fuck up and enjoyed the moment. But our singer was like losing his shit because he was literally, he's a couple years younger than me. And Tim was like the fucking teenage kid with like green day posters on his fucking ceiling you know what i mean like his he he was like holy fucking shit this is insane i'm just like getting to meet like in his mind that was like the reason he played music was because of green day right yeah and so it was it was uh it was pretty cool to know that they actually were even aware of our band and then we exchanged information and kind of kept in touch with them but you know we always kind of like hey let's not like let's not punish you know yeah what's the fact that we have like the singer's wife's email address. You know what I mean? Let's not like be like, let's just be cool. You know, we were doing the warp tour 2004 and we were just about to leave on tour and our manager's like, okay guys. So, um, you're on the short list for, uh, um, green day's about to put out a new record and you're on the short list for, um, bands they're considering to have as the opener. Um, and we were like, holy fucking shit. What do we have to do? Who do we have to blow? You know, like, what do we have to do to make this happen? And um, it was between us and a couple other bands. Actually, I think it was between us. It came down to us and Operation Ivy. No, not Operation Ivy. It came out to us and fucking Alkaline Trio. Alkaline Trio, and, okay. Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, fuck. There's no way they're going to choose us over Alkaline Trio. Alkaline Trio is so fucking rad. Um, oh, well, it would have been awesome. And then sure enough, we got the call that we're, we were the ones they chose. That's crazy, and man. It was insane. And so we're like, fuck yeah, I guess we're going on tour with Green Day. And to play fucking, you know, I mean, dude, we played arenas. We played Long Beach Arena. Yeah. Of course, I said Scream for Me Long Beach. You know, we played Cobo Hall, which is where they did, they recorded Kiss Alive too. We played, um, you know, huge fucking places all over the country. And then while we were on that tour, the singer, Billy Joe, wrote a note with a Sharpie, he was standing on the side of the stage watching us and he wrote a note saying, will you go to, will you open for us in Japan? And he had our guitar tech go out and put it on in front of our singer, like in the middle of one of our shows. And we wow. looked down, we just look over to him and like nod our heads like, yeah, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought that was so fucking cool. Like you got this like superstar who's got like personal assistants and bodyguards and managers and road managers and t- production managers. And he's just like, I'm going to fucking write on a piece of paper with a Sharpie and ask them to tour with me in Japan. I just thought that was so fucking. That's awesome, man. The in the spirit of like, 
old-fashioned punk rock. I just thought that was super cool, rather than, you know. Um, and we ended up touring with them in Japan, too. And one day, I, I was, like, on a walk with their, their bass player, Mike, and I was just kind of, like, at this point, I was a little more comfortable with them. And I'm like, dude, so why the fuck did you why the fuck did you ask our band to go on tour with you guys? <laughs> like, why did you choose us? You know, um, you know, I mean, fucking private eyes. It's a pretty rad song. You could have heard, heard like Matt Skiba sing that every night. Yeah. Um, I don't know what other bands were on the short list. And he's like, honestly, dude, we were on our fucking tour bus and your video from memory came on and we thought you guys looked so fucking cool. Cause you had leather jackets on. And I was like, <laughs> that's the best fucking thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's great like that's the most like metrosexual fucking decision ever so i think i think it's probably a good time i mean i like to keep these things around an hour so uh i now look on the internet and it says that you're doing a lot of djing which we've talked about earlier with other people but you're djing now doing like the emo nights and whatnot uh, do you do you travel around doing that is that like a, a pretty steady gig well i mean sort of it's it's something that i started like towards the end of sugar cult touring you know, when we when we were still in our heavy touring years, um, bus call would be pretty late and our shows would be over pretty early. And I just kind of started DJing to keep myself out of trouble. You know, I was like, what are we going to do? Just go to a bar, and, you know. And so I started just like asking, you know, looking for DJ gigs here and there. And I always thought it was kind of cool. And, and honestly, I'm such a fucking like Clash super fan that I, I heard like the Clash would tour with a DJ. And I just thought thought that was you know something that would be kind of cool to add into rock and roll yeah. and um and so i dj like after parties when we play on tour and have all the like bands that we were on tour with come and hang out and it was just a fun thing to do and then you come home and people are like hey i heard you dj now and you're like all right fuck sure yeah <laughs> and then ask me to dj and then someone would be at that dj set and say hey are you a dj do you have a card we want to hire you to play something and i'd be like um i'm actually just some guy in a band but actually sure yeah i'll do it you know <laughs> and so somehow it just became this thing where i've been sort of steadily djing and of course now there's all these emo nights and all these yeah. things which is you know it's not real djing you're basically just like selecting a bunch of cool shit from from back in the day and playing it but it's the same concept you're working a crowd and and playing music so it's just something sort of i do but i don't i mean my main thing that i do right now which i never really talk about in public so it's not something that you can like you know google and find out that i'm doing or anything i don't even think i even listed on something i do on my facebook page or something most of my friends don't even fucking know i do this but one of the things i do is i teach college so i okay. teach like um a a few like artist development classes and um, music business and marketing classes. And I'll do like, um, you know, kind of career mentoring where, you know, people who are like want to be in the music business, whether they want to be in bands or, um, or anything will just come and, you know, I'll give them sort of cautionary tales and, and mentor them and um, help them out. And it's, it's actually pretty fun because I used to always get like brought in to do guest speaking engagements and stuff. So just kind of doing that's that's really like my bread and butter right now. Okay. Um, because I don't have like an active music like band that I consistently play in. I I do a lot of like projects here and there. I have this project with Joey Cape called Bad Astronaut. It's been like on again, off again since actually since Sugar Cult formed. It was kind of my like mistress band. You know, we would just make recordings, but we never played. And then a few years ago, we decided to actually play some shows. So every once in a while, we'll just like fire up that engine and go do a blast of shows um if it's fun and if it makes sense and then uh so you know i have a few other little projects like that but the djing thing's super fun is sugar cult still like 
on hiatus or is it broken <laughs> up? Like, what's the that's deal with a, that? Well, I mean, that's the million dollar question, I guess. So the <laughs> fucking, that's a that's a seventeen dollars, you know, seventeen ninety nine dollar question. Um, <laughs> it's like I don't know, man. I mean, I just was hanging with Tim at our friends. You know, we both have kids, and we were at our friend's house for a kid's birthday party. And, you know, he was in the pool and I was sitting next to him talking and, you know, when we talk about stuff, it's always like, dude, that'd be fun one day if we did, if we, next time we play sometime, but we never actually like had some like cold band meeting in a room where we said like, this band is over, you know, yeah. we, we never really, <laughs> I mean, I guess the way I like to say it is we never really broke up. We just kind of broke down, <laughs> you know, we just <laughs> okay. kind of like stopped getting um stops taking the uh tour offers and then we would get tour offers but Tim, tim's become a really successful producer he's like one of the most successful producers in the music industry right now okay so he he co-wrote and produced like neon trees and all their big hits he co-wrote and produced um walk the moon and that song shut up and dance yeah. it was a big hit he co he just did that dream car record which was no doubt with davy from afi oh yeah i saw that, that right right that, now that he's doing awesome. a new record yeah, he's doing the Strombella's new record. I mean, he's constantly, constantly in the studio making records with people or, or you know. And so that's really where his um, – that's where his focus is. And he's the kind of guy that's like – I mean, it's exactly one, the reason why Sugar Call became successful is because Tim is so fucking like, like driven and focused – when he's, you know, he can he can't really divide his focus. He has to be like complete, like obsessive compulsive disorder on one thing. And right now, it's on being a producer. So it's like the idea of he's also very competitive. It's like he wants to play if he feels like he can win. And I feel like in his mind, he's got the odds of winning as a producer are higher than the odds of winning as a rock and roll singer. You know, at his age and it and you know at this stage he's he's not like i'm very sentimental i'm a total fucking hopeless romantic music fan i'm sitting in my studio right now and i've got a painting of iggy pop a framed picture of the clash a fucking you know framed picture of tom waits poster a signed copy of dear you you know i'm just that guy i'm so sentimental about shit and i love like rock and roll history and and the whole romance of it. But Tim doesn't have any of that. Like he's just all about the moment and like what's going on right now. He'll throw away every single fucking thing he owns and go to Ikea and buy new shit tomorrow. (laughs) You know, like he doesn't care about saving shit. He doesn't care about the past, you know, he's just, and, and and it's kind of cool. I mean, that's, it's cool when a guy like me and a guy like him do something together because we balance each other out, you know? Um, But he doesn't have as much of like a, Hey, we should take sugar cult on a victory lap. Oh, dude, there's an emo night explosion. We could go make a bunch of money right now. And that's the other thing about Tim is he's never cared about money. Even though he's made a lot of money, he's never cared about it. You know, it's never been his driver. He's got this like internal thing that he's just, I don't know what it is that drives him, but it's definitely not money. It's like, it's really like quality. Like he wants to do a really great job at something, no matter what it costs, um, you know, what he what it takes to get there he he wants and then that to me i really admire that although that exact quality is why he doesn't want to do sugar cult right now (laughs) you know i kind of wish he was a little bit more like fuck dude i could really use like ten thousand dollars you know like (laughs) but like you know he's just uh um you know when when he's ready we'll we'll fucking do it but we you know we're not the kind of band that's gonna like 
go out and do a tour with a different singer. Yeah. You know, like I don't want to get fucking Sammy Hagar to be the new singer of Sugar Cult. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That'd be kind of strange. <laughs> Even though Van Halen did, uh, you know, technically they were more commercially successful with Sammy Hagar than they were with David Lee Roth. That's but, true. I, I still like Roth myself. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah, dude. No contest. Um, but it's just one of those things where like, it's gotta be the right thing. And, and a lot of people are, are fucking you know, baffled. They're like, dude, I don't get it. Why aren't you doing sugar culture? Especially right now, there's such a huge resurgence of interest in, in the, you know, in the, in the genre that you guys were, you know, known for. And, um, and I agree. I'm like, fuck dude, I would do it in a heartbeat. I, I, not only do I love playing music, but I, I love playing music with those guys and I really love our band. And, but the thing that's the most important to me is I feel like we didn't get the last hit. Yeah, And there's that stubborn nature in me, you know, where I'm like, I, I don't like that we didn't get to get the last hit, you know, because we got a little bit thrashed on our third record. Our record company basically just like went out of business unceremoniously, like one day, just on a Friday, they just went, oh, by the way, everyone at this record company's fired and all the band's records are on hold. And just, you know, like the, the parent company that owned the label. So, so it's just sort of like that started the process that eventually led to everybody, the band's momentum slowing down, a bunch of legal bullshit we had to deal with in the wake of that. And then, you know, then it's like, it's like the, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to go to college, but we'll still stay boyfriend and girlfriend and keep in touch. And then you get to college and you meet other girls and you're like, well, I mean, we've both changed. You know, that's what happens to people. As soon as the momentum yeah. slows down, like Tim got into producing. I got into doing this thing. Our bass player got into that. Our drummer got into that. And then eventually it becomes like, once the train stops, it becomes 10,000 times harder to get it to, to, you know, even like move, you know, and that's kind of what happened. We eventually just let the fucking train stop. And so we'll see. I, mean, I, I still, um, I'm ever hopeful, like in a, in, you know, it'll be like a jawbreaker or a refused, like I'm ever hopeful that we'll have that story where we eventually fucking, you know, awaken the the sleeping giant and <laughs> um and do it again. But but we've never officially broken up. Well, that's good. Um, we're just kind of on this indefinite hiatus. But I can tell you, like, the furthest thing from Tim's mind is sugar cult. Other than thinking like, oh man, those were fucking good times. Those were fun <laughs> years. Yeah. Um. You know, he doesn't look back at sugar cult and go, fuck that man. You know, we, there was never like bad blood in our band. It was just kind of like, you know, everyone just kind of grew in, grew into their own lives. And um, it just stopped making, it just didn't seem like it makes sense. Like we got an offer to do Warp Tour a couple times. Kevin called us. He's like, dude, I want you guys to do the 20th anniversary of the Warp Tour. He's going to pay us. And we were like, oh, that sounds awesome. And Tim was like, oh, that sounds fucking cool. But wait, it's like, October right now and I'm going to be committing to something that's going to take June and July of next year and then he's just started thinking like wait a minute what if I get an offer to do like a fucking to produce Weezer's record and I have to say no I can't do it because I'm going to be going on the warp tour you know so in his mind it was like the idea of like committing to a tour you know months down the line is bad for his business as a producer yeah you know 
And so it just, you know, you say no to enough things, offers like that, eventually people, the phone just stops ringing and people are like, dude, those guys are fucking off the market for right now. So, which, you know, whatever it is, what it is, when and if we do do it, it'll be fucking awesome. And I feel like we still got something to say. Definitely. That's the thing. It's like, I don't feel like we're like flock of seagulls or poison where like our fucking, you know, we're sealed, you know, our, our legacy is sealed. I feel like we're one of those bands like... Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I mean, that sounds fucking grandiose to compare <laughs> us to something like that, but it's a band that like, because we were never like a hundred percent, you know, hitting all the right notes of all the fucking and all the right tropes of whatever genre was the in thing. We, the, the beauty of that is a, we were never actually the cool kids at the party that were in and had the right hairdo and had the right pants and had the right fucking everything. But we also never went down with the ship. Yeah. So there's still like, you know, it's like, hopefully our, our vibe is not something that um, would ever expire. You know, like I say Tom Petty, cause I think of that as something that like, you know, it Tom Petty existed through the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, and up until recently and it never seemed ridiculous. It never seemed it never seemed dated or anything. No. It never seemed dated. It never seemed trendy. It never seemed like, yeah, even when they and they aged really well. Like even when I saw Tom Petty, I got to see the last me and our drummer Kenny actually, we went to the last show he ever played before he died. It was Monday. And the only reason I went to the Monday show was because I couldn't get a ticket for cheap enough on for Friday or Saturday. So I went to the Monday show. Turned out that one week to the fucking day, the following Monday, he was dead. Wow. You know, we got to see that show. And at that show, dude, when he was as old as he ever got to play, it was mind blowing. And it wasn't like just because it was a retro, you know, retro experience where you're like, oh, this is so cool that I get to hear these old songs. It was so full of life. And like they could have been a brand new band. They could have been like opening for Dawes and you would have been stoked, you know, like (laughs) it was it's so I was like in our band, I think in the, you know, in the back of our mind with all the decisions we ever made, creative decisions and, um, and like, um, aesthetic decisions, it was always like, Hey, let's, let's make sure that we resist the temptation to jump on the bandwagon and jump on trends. Um, because, you know, it seems like for the short term payoff you get for doing that, what you do is you give up the opportunity to be a band that could last forever. And I'd rather be like, I mean, this sounds so fucking like, uh, canned, but I would rather be the like, you know, Converse All Stars, blue jeans of white T-shirt. You know that never. It's always looks fucking killer, but it never it never goes out of style. You know, versus the fucking like, you know, when every band wanted to sound like the Faint, or when every band <laughs> wanted to sound like the Used, or when every band wanted to sound like fucking Real Big Fish, or when yeah. every band wanted to sound like, um, you know. Migos or whenever, you know, it's like, it's just trends are, I love a lot of those bands, but I've, I've, you know, like I said, it's like that Woody Allen quote always has been in my mind. Like, don't be part of a club that would have you as a member, stay your fucking, stay on your own trajectory, you know? Um, so anyway, so because of that, I think that whenever we decide to fucking un unpause our band's music can fucking drop in and sound it'll either make people go fuck dude i miss the good old days of guitar rock or it'll make people go fuck yeah 
you know, I remember that band from a long time ago, or it'll make people go, dude, there's this fucking new band called Sugar Cult that I just found out about, you know? And so hopefully that's the, the situation, you know? You don't have to have a certain type of haircut to be a Sugar Cult fan, or you don't have to be a certain age or fucking gender or whatever, you know? You just have to, whatever. Just like good know? music, right? I guess, or like <laughs> mediocre music played by fucking, you know, mediocre at best musicians. That's That's the... So that, that'll be the tagline for, for this, for this episode. <laughs> well, right. hey, well, hey, man, I tell yeah. you what, if you guys, you know, you don't have to get back together to come back on this show, but I would love to have you back at some point to talk a little bit more. I feel like we didn't scratch the surface even just talking about everything. Oh, dude, there's, yeah. I mean, there's, dude, I can talk about this shit all day, man. It's so fun. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll hit you up very soon for a part two. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have anything you want to promote right now? Um. Well, actually... There's a thing um, that I'm going to play guitar on. It's going to be super fun. It's called Strange 80s 2. Okay. And I did it last year. It was um. It's it's called Strange 80s because it's kind of like they. It's hosted by the the kid from Stranger Things. Fin, okay. Um, Finn Wolfhard. Okay. Although I don't think that's been officially announced, but uh, <laughs> it's probably going to be hosted by this guy from this show. It's loosely based on a sort of 80s style steven spielberg-esque things and the kids ride around on bikes and there's like yeah so um but yeah it's like uh it's gonna be like dude it's just like members of all these different bands and everyone learns 80s songs and plays last year i did it with um it was me on guitar with john feldman from goldfinger and then ashton and callum from uh this band five seconds of summer that's the like um they're like pretty big pop band from australia that and they love like sugar cult and the ataris and you know it's so weird like kids that grew up on our band are now like in like a band that's like on pop radio but (laughs) uh so i had those guys and we played a couple songs it was super fun so we're gonna do that and we're gonna do it um it's the tickets just went on sale um we're gonna do it in los angeles and in london so in, in october so look up strange 80s and it's all you know it's a benefit um, it's in conjunction with the uh, Chester from Lincoln Park's wife. Like she's going to be like her um, her foundation. It's like suicide prevention kind of thing um, is involved. It's 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 pretty cool, man. It's like a lot of fun, but uh, you know it raised a lot of awareness and money for uh, for causes that need that stuff. And um, so that's something I'd like to promote. And then you know it's always good to like. Um, you know, if you want to stay in touch with me, I'm pretty active on like um, on Twitter, Sugar Cult Marco, and it's Marco with a K. Um, that's my handle, Sugar Cult Marco. And then um, Instagram, I'm I used to be pretty active on Instagram, but I've been kind of forcing myself to chill just because for my own sanity. But you can find me on Instagram. It's just Marco DeSantis. And then uh, I don't know, fucking find me <laughs> at like a coffee shop on you know down the street or whatever. Just come up and say hi. Well, hey, man, I I really want to say thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun hearing all the stories and everything, and I, I can't wait to have you back on the show in the future. So, uh, Cool, dude. I hope it was good. I, I'm thinking back now. I'm like, God, I've, I've probably talked too much about certain things no, and not enough no. about other things. But, yeah, dude, to be continued. This, this is just a conversation, and we're good, we'll come back for a part two and finish the conversation. So I really appreciate it, and I had a great time speaking with you, and I'll talk to you soon. Right on, man. Thanks for doing yeah. it. Talk to you later, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. And there it was, my conversation with Marco DeSantis from Sugar Cult. I had a really great time speaking with Marco. Um, 
yeah, man, I'm just having a really good time doing this podcast and I cannot wait for the next episode. Uh, I am speaking with a couple guests right now, trying to iron out the details for scheduling and whatnot. There will be an episode up next week as well as the week after that. I'm also doing, uh, I'm doing this thing called rock and roll summer camp. I've been doing it for a really long time. I take a lot of kids and we get together and we make bands and we have a big concert for their parents. It's, it's really, really cool. But, uh, I'm going to be doing that starting next Monday. And I had this really cool idea, at least I think it's cool. I'm going to interview some of my students and uh, kind of see where their heads are at as far as music and what their favorite bands are and uh, you know what they think it's like to be on tour. And I might even have a couple of them ask me some questions as well. So I'm going to try to do a different kind of a podcast, do a rock and roll summer camp uh, episode. So I hope you guys will like that. Uh, but we have some great guests coming up, uh, and I just I can't wait for it to keep rolling. So we're up double double digits, man. We got ten episodes. I'm really really excited. So thank you so much for checking this out. I'm going to leave you with a song from Sugar Cult, Marco's band. Uh, it comes. Uh, it was probably probably their lead single. I can't remember. It was a very very uh, popular song from this record. But from the record Palm Trees and Power Lines, it's a song called Memory. So here it is, Memory. From Sugar Cult. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.